0: who was leading a combined Vipassana retreat sweat lodge one time, and one of his assistants was named Dana, and Dana told me this story later. Um, Dana was the gopher gopher to get the wood for the sweat lodge, to get all um, all the needed equipment that they needed for the retreat. And so at the end of the retreat, the Vipassana teacher was very tired, and so he went up and took a nap and left Dana and the Navajos who were running the sweat lodge to clean up. While well, the Navajos were cleaning up and they came across this little basket with Dana's name on it. <laughs> and they said, look, these people are really nice. They saw all the work that you were doing on the retreat and they left this special little donation for you. Well Dana looked into the basket and there was an awful lot of money in there and he said, this is much too much for me to take, let's split it. So he split it with the Navajos. <laughs> And it wasn't until after the Navajos had left that the Vipassana teacher came down and asked for the dana basket. Of course, it was all gone. (laughs) (laughs) My teacher always said that if you want to teach people, make sure they meditate first. So I'd like to have a short guided meditation before the talk. Close your eyes. And think thoughts of goodwill. Start with thoughts of goodwill for yourself, because if you can't feel goodwill for yourself, it's hard to feel it genuinely for other people. So just tell yourself, may I be happy? May I find true happiness? And remind yourself that that's not a selfish thought, because true happiness is something that comes from within. It doesn't require taking resources from outside from anybody else. And when you've developed your own inner resources for happiness, it's a gift not only to yourself but to the people around you. You're not inflicting them with your greed, anger and delusion. And there's a kind of glow that comes from within that other people can pick up as well. So the next step is to spread thoughts of goodwill to others. May they find true happiness too. Start with people who are close to your heart. Family, very close friends. May they find true happiness. and then spread that thought out in ever-widening circles. People you know well and like, people you're more neutral about, and even people you don't like. The world would be a lot better place if everyone found true happiness within. Spread thoughts of goodwill to people you don't know. Not just people, all living beings in all directions, east, west, north, south, above and below, out to infinity. May all living beings be truly happy. Going to look for true happiness, you have to find it in the present moment. So, now bring your thoughts back right here to what you have in the present. You've got your body sitting and breathing, and you've got the mind, which is thinking and aware. So, bring all those things together. Think about the breath, and then be aware of the breath as it comes in and goes out. You can focus your attention anywhere on the body where it. It's easy to notice that now the breath is coming in, now it's going out. Try to breathe comfortably. You might want to start with a couple of good long deep in and out breaths to see how that feels. And if long breathing feels comfortable, keep it up. If not, you can change. You try in long and out short, or in short and out long, or in short and out short. Whatever the body seems to need right now, whatever rhythm and texture of breathing feels best. So take a little while to explore to see exactly what does feel best for the body right now. Think of the breathing as a whole body process. The air is coming in and out, the lungs through the nose. But your whole nervous system is involved as the rib cage expands and contracts as some muscles tense up and others relax. Try to keep the whole body as relaxed as you can, down to the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes. Your mind wanders off, just bring it back to the breathing. Wanders off again, bring it back again. Don't give up, don't get discouraged. The fact that you've caught the mind wandering off, that's a sign that you're, you can use that as an opportunity to strengthen mindfulness and alertness. Mindfulness is keeping something in mind, like keeping the breath in mind right now. Alertness is the actual watching of what's going on. And the third quality that's mentioned as you're developing this meditation is ardency, which means that you really are intent on what you're doing. If you catch the mind wandering off, bring it back immediately, as soon as you notice it. While you're with the breath, try to be as sensitive to the breath as you can. the traditional teachings on breath meditation, the, the third step after being sensitive to long breathing and short breathing, or experimenting with long breathing and short breathing, is to breathe in and out, aware of the whole body. One way of developing that whole body awareness is to go through the body section by section. A good place to start is down at the navel locate where is that part of the body in your awareness right now. And then watch it for a while as you breathe in, as you breathe out. If you notice any sense of tension or tightness there, just allow it to relax. In other words, breathe in without any tension building up on that part part of the body. And then breathe out without holding on to any of that tension or Without pushing the breath out too much. Just allow it to be as open and relaxed as possible. If you want, you can think of the breath energy coming in and out of the body right there. So you don't have to pull it from some other part of the body. Bring your attention up to the solar plexus and follow the same three steps there. One, locate that part of the body in your awareness right in front of the stomach. And then watch it for a while as you breathe in, breathe out. If you sense any sense of tension or tightness, allow it to relax. Think of it dissolving away in the, the movement of the breath. Now move your attention up to the middle of the chest and follow the same three steps there. might find the rhythm of breathing changing as you move from section to section, which is fine. Move your attention up to the base of the throat and follow the same steps there. Now move your attention up to the middle of the head. There tends to be a lot of tension in this area, so treat it gently. <coughs> when you breathe in and out, think of the breath energy very gently coming in, not only through the nose, but also through the ears, the eyes, in from the back of the neck, down from the top of the head. Very gently opening up any sense of tension or tightness that you have, say, in the jaws, the neck, the face. muscles around the eyes. Working through that tension and just lifting it away. If you're doing this meditation alone and you have more time, you can continue the survey of the body down the back, out the legs, starting again at the back of the neck, going down the shoulders, and out the arms. But for tonight, you can just return your attention to any one of those spots that we surveyed just now, whichever one seemed most comfortable, easiest to focus on. the sense of the breath felt most satisfying, return your spot there and allow your to return your attention to that spot, and then think of your awareness spreading from that spot out to fill the whole body. So you breathe in, aware of the whole body. Breathe out, aware of the whole body. And then just try to maintain that whole body awareness all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out-breath. Don't let it shrink. And then whatever sense of ease or comfort you, f- you have at that spot that you focused on, allow that to f- permeate throughout the body as well, wherever it can go. Before you leave meditation, think thoughts of goodwill once more, whatever sense of peace or calm you felt during the session. Just dedicate it to someone else, either specific people you know are suffering right now, or to all living beings in general, in all directions. before you open your eyes, remember that there's a a skill to leaving meditation. My teacher once said that when people meditate, they're like a person who climbs a ladder up to the second story of a house. He climbs up, run by run by run, finally gets into the house, and then when he leaves, he jumps out the window. So, don't jump. Remind yourself that Even though your eyes are open, the breath is still there in the body. You can still have that sense of space, of openness inside. So, when you open your eyes, try to maintain that sense of the breath, even while I'm talking, while there's questions and answers. And if you can, carry it home. it's that sense of being centered inside that gives continuity to the meditation and allows you to carry the meditation into your life. Also gives you a, a standard against which to measure the movements of your mind. When you see something that causes that inner sense to collapse or to shrink. It's a sign that something has happened in the mind, something you should look into. This way it forms a basis for insight. So with that in mind, you can open your eyes. There's a story they tell about Gertrude Stein's last words. Apparently all the literary crowd in Paris knew that she was about to die. And so they gathered around her bed to hear what final <coughs> words she would have to say. And so at one point she raised her head from the pillow and said, What is the answer? Put her head back down. And everybody in the room kind of looked at each other. What do we say now? And then just before she died, she raised her head once more and she said, well, what was the question? <laughs> and It's hard to tell whether she was just being smart or whether she was being wise. There's difficult answers. If the question is hard to answer, sometimes it's good to turn around and look at the question itself to see if it's a proper question, appropriate question, exactly what lies behind the question, how have you framed it, maybe you should frame it in a different way. And I think that's one of the main issues we should consider as we look at the question of not-self. The Buddha's teaching on not-self, exactly what question was it meant to answer. If you misunderstand the question, the answer can cause you trouble. We might think of knowledge as tools. The various things we know are used in different ways. Our questions are like the molds that we use in order to make the tools. And When you have a tool, the first question is, okay, what task is this a tool appropriate for? And many times we take the question of not self and we use it like a sledgehammer. There is no self. Bang. And I think the question is more meant, or the teaching is more meant to be used as a crowbar for prying apart attachments. So instead of using a a sledgehammer, maybe it's a good idea to see exactly how the crowbar is formed, how it's molded. I think one of the Buddha's more interesting teachings is on what you might call his science of questions. There was one point where he actually categorizes the different kinds of questions that we might encounter in life. He said basically there are four kinds. The first kind is the question that deserves a straight answer. The question is well formed, you just give a straight answer and that's the end. The second kind of question, one that in which you have to ask a counter question first, one to get to see what's behind the question. Or to clarify some of the issues before you give your answer. So that's the second type. The third type is where you have to make the question more precise, redefine the terms. One of the classic examples in the text is when someone comes up to the Buddha and asks him, Would you ever say anything unpleasant? Say anything that would cause people to get upset. And they were using this as a trick question. If he said no, well, they had evidence that he in the past had seen some things that were unpleasant. (laughs) Um, If he said yes, then they would say, well, what's the difference between you and everybody else? Well, the Buddha immediately says, well, that's a question that deserves an analytical answer. And he said, statements can be true or not true, beneficial, not beneficial, pleasant or unpleasant. And in his case, he would say only things that were true and beneficial. And as for whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, he would look for the right time and place. So that cleared up that by reanalyzing the question. And then there's the fourth kind of question which isn't worth answering. Just put it aside. There's some classic lists. Is the world eternal? Is it non-eternal? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Is the body separate from the soul? Is it the same thing as a soul? What's the status of a person after they gain awakening? Do they exist? Do they not exist? Both? Neither? The Buddha said, put those aside. You've probably heard the story of the man shot with the arrow. man comes in, he's been shot by an arrow, and he says to the surgeon, well, before you take the arrow out, I have to know, you know who shot the arrow, what kind of wood it was made out of, where the feathers come from, that whole list. And, of course, the person's going to die before he gets the arrow out. And that's that particular insight, I think, lies behind the Buddha's classification of questions. He realizes the big question in life is there's suffering. What can we do to put an end to suffering? And the main problem, why we need a specific science of questions, is our normal reaction to suffering is one, bewilderment. How is this why did this why is this happening to me? How is this happening? And then there's the search. What can I do? Who knows a way to get out of this suffering? Now the problem is the search is often clouded by the bewilderment. We ask the wrong questions, we end up with sledgehammers when we need crowbars or um, wrenches when we need screwdrivers. This is because suffering is complex, and so we have to look at the complexity of suffering. And, this, and it's in this context that the Buddha uses the teaching on not self particularly how, The question is, how is this particular teaching meant to put an end to suffering? The usual treatment that you hear is that it's an answer to the questions, is there a self? Or the question, who am I? We're often told that these are the classic questions that lie behind any kind of spiritual quest. And it's interesting (coughs) that we give two types of answers to these. One is the categorical straight answer, no, there is no self. That's how we interpret the Buddha's answer. Or we hear that he gives an analytical, reworked answer to the question is, well, no, there is no permanent self, or no, there is no separate self. In the first case, we say, well, there are the five khandas, and that's what you are. You're just a bundle of five khandas, but there's no permanent self there. In the second case, they say, well, you don't have a separate self, but you are one with all being, one with all the universe. Both of these these answers create problems. If you're just five khandas... Well, what happens in nirvana when the five khandhas are gone? Does that mean that you're wiped out? That doesn't sound very good. When I was a couple of years back at the monastery, I had some, we have a bell up at the monastery, which we use for emergencies. And one afternoon I heard someone ringing the bell. So I went up, and he had been reading a book which is teaching that there is no self. And he says, look, are we committing spiritual suicide here? <laughs> if I'm just five khandhas, I have no permanent self, okay, what's going to be left when there's a nirvana? I said, well no, the Buddha didn't teach that. The question of having no separate self, if we're one with all, well, how does nirvana fit into that picture? Do we have to wait till everybody else gets to nirvana before we go? Do we drag everybody else along when we go? Or is this nirvana already? And I'm told some people teach that. I still have trouble seeing that. So and the Buddha actually put both of these questions. It turns out the question of, is there a self, is there no self, the question of, who am I, what am I? both cases, the Buddha put those questions aside. They belong to that fourth category eternalism views about annihilation. If you try to answer the question, who am I, you just get so tied up in the questions of, what does it mean to be I, what does it mean to exist, that you lose the whole point of the practice. So if he put these questions aside, then the question is, okay, what question does the not-self teaching answer? And it turns out it's not just one question, it's a series of questions. The first set of the questions are the questions that he said that lie at the start of discernment. If you want to gain discernment, you want to gain insight. He says you go to someone (coughs) who seems to be a teacher, and the first question you ask is, what is skillful, what is not skillful? Particularly, you know, what is skillful in terms of putting an end to suffering? What is not skillful in terms of putting an end to suffering? Follow-up questions. What, when I do it, will lead to long-term happiness? What, when I do it, will lead to long-term suffering? Now, it's interesting that the underlying implications of these questions are it's what you do that is important in life, and that they're gradations of suffering and gradations of happiness, short-term, long-term and it's worth looking into it, and also worth, worth looking into what you can do in order to put an end to suffering. We usually think of the question of wisdom, insight, discernment, however you want to define it, as a question of the you know, three characteristics, the characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and not-self. And we usually see that in the context of our good old American consumerism, that we're here to consume experiences, whether they're in terms of material objects, in terms of relationships, in terms of spiritual experience. And basically the three characteristics sound like advice to consumers. Things change, they're not under your control. Squeeze what you can out of them before they go and then let go. Um, Common advice is to embrace without clinging. Try to picture that in your mind. What is it like to embrace without clinging? It's kind of like holding with your arms but leaving your fingers limp or something. But actually, when you look into the, into the culture that the Buddha was dealing with, it wasn't the consumer culture that we have now. It was more of a culture where people produced what they consumed. You acted both as producer and as consumer. Here, in the modern society that we have, these two functions seem to be separated. What you produce, other people use. What you use, other people produce. And there's a disconnect. It was that, one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons was of two couples sitting in a living room, and that's a pretty plush living room. And the husband of one couple is saying, Of course it's had its ups and downs, but by and large Margaret and I have found the consumer experience to be a rewarding one. (laughs) 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 Of course, you wonder what it was like for the people who produced what they were consuming. Um, And I think this is one of the areas where we in the West have a disadvantage when we come to the Buddha's teachings. We don't have that sort of innate understanding that comes from a person who's been producing what he's been consuming, or what she's been producing, what she consumes. As consumers, we just want the best experience, as easy and quick, comfortable as possible. But when you're producing, you also have to ask the question about exactly how much work is this worth, the the things that I'm going to produce, that I'm going to consume. Um, One way of illustrating this contrast is (coughs) with a, thai, with a uh, poem, it's one of the famous epics in Thailand, it's kind of a, the Thai version of Tom Jones. Only there are two Tom Joneses in this one, they're both friends, and it's a story of their amorous adventures. And I think at, at one point in the text, and one point in the poem, each of them cheats on the other one, with their, with their friends' wives, best friends, they do this with each other's wives. At any rate, one of the, one of the men goes off on a, one of his amorous adventures, And he goes into the apartment of this woman that he's fallen in love with. And as soon as he enters, there's this beautiful screen that sort of divides the room. And then for the next several stanzas of the poem, it's a description of the screen. The story that's being depicted on the screen has been beautifully illustrated. Um, And for a while you forget about the, the story of the guy going into the apartment, and you're in the story on the screen. The importance of this is that the woman in the room painted the screen herself. And by looking at the screen, getting a sense of this particular story that she tells, how she tells it, how she illustrates it, you get a really good sense of who she is, what kind of personality she has. Now you contrast this with a lot of the writing we see in America. I don't know if you remember Tom Wolfe's writings back in the 60s, when he first got started. He'd describe, if he's going to talk about a particular person, do a portrait. He started out by describing how that person decorated his or her house, how they decorated his or the, the office, what clothing they wore. In other words, the things that they consumed. Or another American comparison would be the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. How many of those rich and famous people showed off the things that they had made in their house? Mostly things they had bought. So this is a real contrast in the societies, and I think we have to keep this in mind as we look at the Buddhist teachings. The question is, as the Buddha's teachings on karma points out, we are the people who fashion our experience. We also fashion fashion our sense of self, who we are. It's something that we make. Well, the question is, is it worth it? Because one of the other teachings that he points out is that where there is the most clinging, there is the most suffering. And what do we cling to more than anything else, but this sense of self that we've created? So the obvious answer is, well, it's something that's good to learn how to stop doing as a way of minimizing suffering. The problem is that um, we live in a complex system of suffering. If we could just kind of let go no matter where we were and be free, it would be really easy. But you can't do that. When things are complex, if you've studied complex systems, you may know that they have only a few points in the system where things fall apart or where there are things that you can get out of the system. There's There's actually a mathematical explanation for this. Every complex system is made up of several different equations working together. And it so happens that the more equations you have, the more likely it is there will be certain parts where you combine the equations and you end up with a member of the equation divided by zero. If you ever hit that point in the system, you're out. Just like any mathematical. You probably learn math in fourth grade as you can't divide by zero. That's just out of the question. But if you hit that point in the system, you're out. But not every point in the system is like that. If you're Other places, when you're in the system, you're very much tied in. And the that difficult thing is that our sense of self is very much a part of the system as well. So what do you do? You try to position yourself so you can get to that those particular points. At the same time, our sense of self is also complex. In order to know it, you have to learn how to manipulate your sense of self as well. And it turns out that by finding... By manipulating your sense of self, trying to identify with different things, trying to identify what, what seem to be better and more calm things, you find that you put yourself in the right position to get out of the system. Because the points that we get out of the system are the points where the mind is still, clear, calm, and balanced. So you try to develop those qualities. Now because the system is created through your intentions, what this means is you're trying to get to the points where Finally there is no intention, That sort of the intention is divided by zero and you're out. And This is one of the reasons why it's so important in the practice to pay very careful attention to what you do, why that question of what is skillful is such a good question. Because what lies behind what you do? It's your intentions. How do you get to know your actions? By learning to be more skillful in those actions. You come to see more and more exactly how much of your experience you are shaping by the way you intend. Last week I was teaching a retreat, there was a young man who had been trained in the Zen tradition. He said, well, why, can't, why, why this obsession with being skillful in little minute things about what you do and what you say? Why can't you just kind of let go? Because the deathless is always there, I mean, the Buddha nature is always there. Well, it's because your intentions are so complexly wound up. You need to find those spots where things open up. To get yourself there, you have to pay very careful attention to what you're doing, because this is the principle that's creating suffering. So in order to bring the mind to those points that I said that are you know, still and clear, this is why there's so much emphasis on the path. Developing virtue, there's the mind when, you, when you've been principled in your actions and you reflect on your actions, you see there's nothing here that I could really blame myself for. There's nothing here that you have to deny, there's nothing here that you have to regret. It makes the mind easier, a lot easier for the mind to settle down, so you work on virtue. Then you work on mindfulness and alertness so you can be really clear about what you're doing. Bring the mind to stillness and concentration. So in order to do all this, this is where the sense of self turns out to be useful on a certain level. Because in order to practice virtue and concentration, you need to have a sense of self-reliance. After all, you're the person who's doing this. You need to have a sense of self-responsibility. This also builds that sense of self-esteem and self-worth that allows the mind to settle down in a healthy way, rather than kind of a neurotic in a way of denial. I know a lot of people who do concentration practice. Some people are very good at concentration practice because they're good at denial. Just, just sort of block out everything in their minds, which is not helpful. You need to have concentration that's based on a sense of self-esteem, <coughs> self-worth. And even in California, we've discovered that self-esteem and self-worth have to be based on doing things that are worthy of self-esteem and self-worth. <laughs> you can't just think your way into it. I was talking to a psychotherapist a while back, she was apparently back in what was the seventies or so, she was one of the leaders in this self-esteem movement and she said it. You know, they finally had to admit that yeah, the kids have to do something that's worthy of self-esteem before they can actually carry self-esteem around. So even in California we've learned that lesson. Once you get the mind centered and still with this sense of well-being that comes from getting more and more skillful, that's when you can, be, you can start deconstructing that sense of self. First, It's because you actually see the process of self-construction in action. You see the movements of the mind. When you're very still, very clear, you can see, I'm identifying with this. Now I'm identifying with that. And you begin to see that your sense of self is, is kind of like an amoeba. It keeps changing shape. Sometimes you identify with your body. Sometimes it's with feelings. Sometimes it's with your ideas of things. Sometimes it's with that sort of field of consciousness that you have. And it moves around. And you see that there actually are decisions that you make on a very subtle level to identify with this, identify with that. And as you see this you begin to see that everything, every possible self you could create out of these raw materials, of, you know the five kinds, uh, the body or any kind of form, feeling perception, the labels you put on things, thought constructs the way you put ideas together or consciousness of the senses, any construct that you may make out of them is stressful because it's inherently unstable. Anything made is going to fall apart at some point. And if you're identifying with something and you know that it's going to fall apart, there's anxiety. (coughs) Your sense of self has to feed. And when when you have to feed, you're always concerned about food source. What's going to keep this alive? If my food source changes, where am I going to go? World War III happens. Where is everybody in New York going to go when food stops coming in? That's on the macro level. On the micro level we have the same problem day by day by day. If your sense of self depends on a particular kind of relationship, or a particular kind of role, it's always inherently unstable. Worrying about the future, concern about the past, where have I come from, where am I going, all those things. You know it's this self, this body is going to die, what happens then? All these questions start coming up in the mind. <clears throat> And at the same time, then you start taking this sense of self apart into its raw materials. And this is where the the next set of questions comes in. The Buddha says, with each of these raw materials that you create a sense of self from, ask yourself, would I really want to be identified with this? You might say, is this me, is this not me? You say, well, you have the choice, but do I really want to identify with my body? Do I want to identify with feeling and so you start taking it apart step by step by step. Notice this is a very different kind of question from saying, who am I or do I have a self? But basically, do I want to identify? Do I want to continue doing this? Different question. comes down to, is this skillful to keep creating this kind of sense of self or whatever sense of self? And as you take the sense of self, wherever it happens, apart, piece by piece by piece, you look at the raw materials, and even though you've been doing a very skillful job of using these raw materials in order to create the path, because that's what you've been doing, you create concentration out of the same five condos. You create your discernment using these same five condos. But no matter how skillfully you handle it, you realize that these raw materials, none of them are really anything that you would want to identify with. It's like realizing that you've been building your house out of frozen meat. <laughs> now you can have a really pretty house, nice Victorian decorations, but it's still frozen meat.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> or you can think about those, the story they tell about the Japanese cooks during the occupation after World War II. One subtle way of getting revenge on the Americans who were coming into the restaurants was to take human excrement and make it into food. And you can make really good food, apparently, if you're a very clever cook, which they were, but it's still shit. <laughs> So you look at the raw materials from which you're making yourself and say, do I want to identify with this? Could I ever build anything out of this that I would want to identify with? And say, no. And as you go through this, sort of an immediate experience, there comes a point where you totally let go of any of the things that you've been clinging to, any of the raw materials that you've been working with. At that point, when you let go, there's total freedom. The texts describe it as, you know, they don't go into a lot of details to describe it because the descriptions would be a perception which you might end up holding on to. But as you know, in the course of the path, you've been using particular ideas, the, one of the ideas that they keep drum, drumming in over and over again is the idea of total freedom. In fact, that's what the word nirvana means or the implication of the word. The, the word nirvana literally means the, the going out of a the fire. They would say that a fire nirvana. And we have the idea when a fire goes out, just you know, totally obliterate it out of existence. But for them, it meant that it was freed from its fuel. That was the implication of the image. Because when the fire is burning, it's clinging, it's agitated. You can prove the clinging. You go home, take a stick with a fire on the end and try to shake the fire off the end of the stick. It won't go the whole time. It's agitated, it's hot, it's bothered. But when, it, when finally the fire is liberated from the fuel... That's when the fire goes out. That was the implication in their minds. That's how they understood physics in those days. So the, the image behind nirvana is one of freedom. Now when you have total freedom like that, the question is, is there a self-experience in this? Is there not a self-experience in this? Who is experiencing At that point you don't care. It's not an issue. You've got total freedom. You've got what, you know, what, what you've been after. And when you look back on the path that took you to that freedom, you realize why it was a wise idea to put that question of self or not self aside. Because if, you're, if you try to define yourself, as the Buddha once said, no matter how you define yourself, you're going to limit yourself. You're limited by whatever you identify with. Also, that sense that you were trying to free from the system, that was part of the system. So you get around that paradox, that kind of you know, catch-22, by just focusing on the question, well, is what am I doing right now skillful? If it's not, let's stop it. Do I have to do this? When you see that anything is unskillful, that it's causing suffering, when you see that it's not necessary, that's when you drop it. As long as you assume it's necessary to keep creating this self, you always will, and you always suffer. You get the mind to a point of stillness, where it's balanced, healthy, in that state of clarity. You see, I don't have to do this. You can put down the burden. You don't even have to tell yourself to put down the burden, you put it down. So this is what the Buddha was getting at with the question of you know, the teaching and not self. It's answering that question: Is what am I? Do, what am I doing? Right, what I'm doing right now? Is it skillful? Now there are certain levels, as I said, where it's skillful to create a self, as you have that sense of self-reliance, self-responsibility. That gets you to those points where, you, in, this, in the points of your experience, where you can actually take things apart further. Without that kind of training, you're just kind of wandering around in the system. You never hit those points. Because they're, very, they're they're impossible to get into without this kind of work. Once you're there, okay, then you can take that part of that sense of self apart and just stop. You reach that point of no intention, which is, you know, taking the system and dividing it by zero, and you're out. So when anyone asks you, "What is this teaching on not self?" What question does it answer? It, question, it answers the question: Is it skillful? Is it skillful to create a sense of self? And when you get to the point in your own experience, when you realize that, no, it's not, I don't have to, and then you're free. That's how the, the teaching on that self functions as a crowbar. It pries your attachments away. It pries your misunderstandings away, so you can get to that point where you're no longer creating suffering. So, those are my thoughts on the topic. Do you have, do you have any questions? Yes.
1: Well, I is not okay,
0: I just it's the wrong okay it's the wrong time it's the wrong time to ask, ask that question okay. at this stage you said okay, can i make a really skillful sense of self here and so you take those five khandas, the, you know, the five aggregates that you've been working with, and you, you know, create a person who is virtuous. You create a person who is concentrated. You create the factors of the path. In the, way, in the way you act, the way you think, the way you speak. And that eventually will get you to the point where you realize, I don't want to do this anymore. Until you've got there, you've got to have a sense of self. It's just that you create a better and better one. So there are two stages on the path, or two two sets of questions that this teaching is meant to answer. Yes, Wendy. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you don't create non-self you use it as a perception as again it's a question whenever the buddha teaches the teaching on not-self it's always introduced with a set of questions you look at form is this something you would identify want to identify with again it's one of those areas where you're using a perception perception of not-self to get you to that point where then you can take things apart goes against the grain to, to not create a self and this is why he says okay since you're so good at creating a self let's create a good self because you know concentration is made out of the, those five condos there's the, the form of your body there's the feeling of pleasure that comes with it there's the perception of whatever your object is like the breath or the body the thought constructs sort of the mental dialogue that's going on in your, about the concentration and then of course there's the consciousness of that So you're taking those and just, instead of thinking about them, I'm going to create this new self, you just say, well, I'm going to create a state of concentration here. And the mind latches on to identifies with that state of concentration. That's more skillful than identifying with the person who wants to go bombing somebody else or whatever. It's like it takes you you on the steps of a ladder. And when you climb a ladder, you have to cling. It's just that you give yourself something better to cling to, and then you let go of the lower level, then you cling to the next level, let go of this, and work your way up the ladder. Finally get to the top of the, you know, wherever the ladder's taking you. That's when you can let go of the ladder. You're done. Does that answer your question? Okay. <laughs> yes. Embracing sounds good,
1: right? Mm -hmm.
0: It's the question of what are you going to embrace. Because certain things, when you embrace them, are just going to get you further and further away from those spots where you can get out, and other things help pull you towards it. You know, you embrace the practice you embrace the practice of um, of virtue. You you hold on to those precepts. It's interesting in Thai, their their term for maintaining the precepts is to hold to the precepts. You do, you hold on to them. So it, it, it depends on what you're embracing. That's what makes all the difference. I mean, is Nirvana San Diego as opposed to New York? I'm afraid that one of the, the epithets they have for it is cool, which of course in India works fine. the fear and again fear comes from holding on to something you're putting yourself in it you've realized you're in a position of weakness You're in a position of danger He would say okay what is it that you're holding on to where you're exposing yourself to that danger and in the meantime what can you hold on to that's not exposed to that danger in this context yet there was a teaching that he calls the noble treasures which are qualities that you build into your mind so I'm going to hold on to these you know, virtue belief and conviction in karma. A lot, lot of people have problems with the idea of karma, but when you look at it, it's really a very important teaching. It's, what, do you, what do you ask to have conviction in? One, you're responsible for your actions. Two, the quality of your action is determined by the quality of the intention, which is something you can control. Three, actions do give results. So whatever good you do is not wasted. And you hold on to that. Nobody can take that away from you. The whole image of what they call these noble treasures is that fire can't burn them, thieves can't steal them, hateful heirs can't inherit them after you go. (laughs) It's something you've got no matter what happens. So it's conviction, virtue, a sense of shame. Now here shame doesn't mean feeling ashamed about your past actions, but when you consider an action that you're going to do and you think of something that would, you know, it's not really below you, you'd be ashamed to do it. That's basically an the obverse side of self-respect, so having respect for yourself, concern for the results of your actions, generosity, listening to the Dharma, and wisdom, discernment. You hold on to these things, okay, these are your treasures, no matter what the government does, no matter what the terrorists do, you've got these, those are your important possessions. Yes. I not sure, <clears throat> I'm not sure I how uh, what you consume, I was trying to get more to the our, our perspective on the Buddhist teachings. If we think about the teaching of impermanence simply as advice for consumers. He's basically saying, okay, embrace what you can while you can before it goes, and then get ready to embrace something else afterwards. As producers, the question comes up is, is this worth my effort producing it? What what good am I going to get out of producing this particular thing? And in a society where people are sort of more, that's a role that they're really familiar with. I think they would understand that the context of the teaching is much better than someone who's just totally in the consuming mode. For me, it was you know, a real revelation going to Thailand, and... Having to learn how to sew my own robes, fire my own ball, sharpen my own knives with a a rock. I think this is one of the reasons why Zen teachers like to have their students master a skill before they go in to meditate. Because you get an instinctive sense of, for example, how to deal with desire in your practice. Many times we're told that desire is a bad thing, but if you don't desire results from your practice, why are you practicing? It doesn't make any sense question is, of course, if the desire gets in the way, that's a problem, too. If you have experience mastering a skill, you've had more experience in how to balance that question of desire and results. And you realize, after a while, okay, it's important to focus on the causes. Focus your desire there. Once, you have, once you're confident that, okay, these causes are going to give rise to the results I want, you focus your efforts on what you're doing here. So, it's again, it's more of a, a question of the doing, the producing. A good analogy for this might be, you want to drive to a mountain. Now, you could either watch the road or you could watch the mountain.
1: <laughs>
0: so, I mean, you check the mountain every now and then to make sure it's not in your rear view mirror, but <laughs> you focus on the road. So, it's not that you know, cons- you know, producers are more, inherently more skillful than consumers, but many times they are. But it's ju- just the question of realizing if you're going to produce this and you're going to be consuming it, It's very different from just producing things that other people are going to use and consuming things that other people have produced. You get a different perspective. Yes? I know my teacher encouraged you know, self-reliance, self-esteem as part of the path. He said that the, once you get to the end, if something is skillful, you, it's still there to use. It's not that they're obliterated <coughs> when you reach the end. It's more like they kind of hover around you and they're there to pick up whenever you need them and then you just put them aside and they're still hovering around. But you're not carrying them around with you anymore. So the whole issue of self-esteem versus self-loathing, saying, that's just not an issue. But if it's a question of am I going to depend on someone else to do this or am I going to depend on myself, if I can do it, I'll do it. If I can't, no problem. I noticed being with my teacher when he was sick and then years later being my father when he was sick was two very different experiences. When my, you know, my teacher needed, needed help, there was no sense of, gee, I'm not worthy of this or you know, I'm, I don't like being a burden on other people. If it, you had to be a burden, you had to be a burden. It was part of human life. Now, he was not ordinarily a very self-reliant person. And when he recovered from his illness, he basically said, OK, you can go where you want to now. That was it. Never, never thank you or anything. <laughs> Just, you want to go? Go. <laughs> so the issues are not, they're not the same the issues that they are for us. But where, you know, wherever self-esteem or where self-reliance is useful, OK, there it is, to use it when you need it and put it aside. So I think that's the difference. But while you're on the path, it's a very useful quality to have. The, I think it was Ananda who made the point about desire. Someone asked him one, one time, what is one of the goals or what is one of the results of this path that you practice? And he said, well, it's the ending of desire. And he said, well, how do you get there? He said, well, you developed the desire to go. <laughs> and he said, wait a minute, this just doesn't work. Okay, And so and then they said, well, they were sitting in a park, and Sonanda said, well, before you came to the park, did you have the desire to come here? And the man said, yes, I did. He said, well, once you got to the park, what happened to that desire? He said, it didn't need it anymore. You drop, you drop it. So it's, it's that same sort of thing. You develop these skillful qualities, and if they're ever useful, they're there they are. And if they're not, you just sort of let them go. We can see notions. How is it more objective? Part of it is, one, just stop thinking about creating a self and just say, I'm just going to do what's skillful. And you look at your actions. There's a, a wonderful passage where the Buddha is talking to his seven-year-old son. And I'm thinking someday it'd be good to write an article on Buddhism for children, to go through where the Buddha is talking to the little kids. and Because you get the really basic teachings and they're very useful teachings. It clears a lot, a lot of um, problems, a lot of confusion. This is, you know, use your actions as a mirror. And, in other words, when you intend to do something, look at the intention. Okay, Am I going to harm anyone by this? Am I going to harm myself? Am I going to harm anybody else by doing this action? And if you see that there is potential harm, you don't do it. Okay. While you're, If it's, if you saw there's no potential harm, then you go ahead and do it. While you're doing it, you monitor the results of your action. Am I harming myself? Am I harming anybody else? If you see that you're causing harm, you stop. After it's done, you begin to... and. If you're not seeing any harm, you continue doing it until it's done. When it's done, then you reflect again on the results that came over time. You say, well, this was connected with that. If there was some un- unexpected harm, okay, realize I shouldn't do that again. This is how you learn. And, of course, your perception of what's harmful and what's not harmful is just going to get more and more and more precise over time as you get more sensitive to this particular question, more sensitive to harm. You said, And also, you gave example. If you, see, if you see any potential harm from this, or any, any harm that you created, go and talk it over with someone else who's practicing, so you can get their perspective as well. Then you can weigh that into the equation, so the next time around. And it's just like with any skill. You don't start out, if you're going from total lack of skill to total skillfulness. It's sort of a more gradual, step-by-step-by-step by step by step process. And it's, a lot of this is, comes down to being willing to learn from your mistakes which is I, you know, it's one of our American diseases, we don't like to you know, admit mistakes. <laughs> but I'll, If you can start learning from your mistakes like this and not get neurotic about them, then you have this potential for getting you know, closer and closer and closer to where you want to be. There's that, you know, that famous passage from the Kalama Sutra where the Buddha says, you know, don't believe something just because somebody else tells you, you know, your teacher tells you, or it's in the texts, or whatever. We all remember that part. But he also says, don't go by something just because you like it or it seems reasonable. And you begin to say, okay, what do I go by? <laughs> you can't take your inner, inner sense of right and wrong just as it is, or you can't take outside guides. You know, it's this, this is the answer. Just look at your actions and see what actually happens as a result of your actions. Get a good sense of cause and effect. Realize that some of the effects come while you're acting, some of them come later. And then if you see that you made a mistake, okay, resolve not to do it again. If you don't see any harm at all, take joy in the fact that you're practicing in the right way. And this gets you closer and closer and closer. It's kind of an incremental growth. And then the Buddha's image for the, the, the path is, it's kind of like the continental shelf off of India. He says it, it gradually slopes off and then finally plunges. So you get to that point where you get to the gradual slope and then you hit the plunge. Most of us want to take the plunge right away. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an all or nothing, but he says, look, you know, you're working there. For a lot of this, and again, for, in a country where we don't have that many skills, we're not that skillful in how we relate to our goals. If we want something fast, we want to be able to do it right now. Long-term goals cause us suffering. Whereas in a country where they've been, everything you do has to be you know, your own personal skill, you have a much healthier relationship to the fact that well, I may not be there yet, but I'm progressing.
1: Yes. And are thinking about the goal, it seems like the universal goal is to stay alive.
0: point of view that everybody's goal is they want to be happy, truly happy. Which doesn't necessarily doesn't mean you have to stay alive. It's a very different perspective. Yeah. Well you can come back again. <laughs> Buddhist perspective we're, we're always going to come back we're always going to you know if we have the choice to be alive or aren't going to make that choice and he says okay make them be a better choice to say well let's, let's try for true happiness which not, doesn't even depend on the life of the body but when you have that perspective it you know, changes your whole the whole way you see things which is why you know they inc- this is you know forest monks go out in the forest and put their lives on the line I want something that's better than being alive. Just being alive. And that's what the Buddha did. He said he had, you know, wealth, beauty, sensual pleasures, power. He said, this isn't good enough. If this is all human life is, it's not all that good. I want something better. He was an awfully demanding person. <laughs> This isn't good enough, I want something better than this. And his friends said, oh, come on, it doesn't get better than this. This is as good as it gets, enjoy it. He said, nope, I'm going out in the forest to see if there's anything better. Six years later he came out and said, hey, I found something better.
1: But how have they been there? Who are at that point when they have realization of self? Is it probably at that when they have a career and
0: they are living a monastic life? Well, there are stages in awakening. And if you've heard of the four stages of awakening. There's one that's called stream entry. And they say you hit the stream to nirvana and if you don't practice any further you can be guaranteed nirvana within seven lifetimes the second stage is what they call once returning and, the, and these are all the, the most definite experiences that you have in the meditation the, fir, the first taste of the deathless is this one of stream entry, which you realize that okay, these five khandhas that I've been identifying as myself, that's not myself but you realize also that you still have defilements in the mind. There's still greed, anger, and delusion that hasn't been rooted out. You know, There's a deeper understanding that has to come in. With each of the stages, you get deeper and deeper until you finally get to total awakening, which is the fourth stage. Now, they say a fourth stage person cannot live in a home, can't have a career, because there is no motivation at all. But for the other three, it's possible. So you can have your first glimpse. It's okay, but I still have responsibilities, I still have got... Things I've got to do, but from that point on, you can never break the precepts. You just—it's so ingrained in your being that you realize how important what you do is. That you could never do anything that was harmful intentionally, which rules out a lot of careers right there, but not all of them. <laughs> yes. I actually wonder if you
1: could talk some more about uh, I've heard
0: descriptions that go. Understanding these mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I've heard some say it's, it's one of those earth-shaking experiences mm-hmm. that you know will mm-hmm. happen. So I'd, I'd just like to get your take on that. Well, it is earth-shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long it takes an individual really depends on the individual. But It in, in, you know, involves getting the mind to be really, really sensitive to your actions. Really, mm-hmm. really sensitive to exactly the slightest bit of stress slightest bit of identification with the five khandas. It's interesting, the Buddha doesn't describe the experience itself. He says, okay, these are the steps that will take you there. And once you've had that, sort of bypasses around the experience. And says, okay, these are the results you're going to see. Probably because, I think because if you get something described, everybody's going to go out and clone it. And you want to, in order to prevent that. But he does say that it is a taste of the deathless. In fact, one of the descriptions is you plunge into the deathless. It's a total, you know, whole being kind of experience. And then the test is afterwards, okay, are these particular defilements erased? I mean, is there any sense of, would you ever essay from this point on that the body or the five khandhas are yourself? Would you ever have any doubt in the Buddha's teachings after that? Would you say my purification depends on my doing certain rituals? Well, no. Because you've seen it's a totally internal kind of thing. I went sort of a meditation system where, after you hit what they described as stream entry, then they would give you a tape to listen to it so you would know which defilements you had abandoned. Which strikes me as something's wrong there. I mean, if you, you know, you know you, know. That's, you know. you don't have to be told. And The factors leading up to stream entry, one is you know, associating with good people. It means also recognizing who good people are. Two, listening to their dharma. Three, asking appropriate questions both of them and of yourself. And then the four is whatever whatever really does seem to be dharma, you practice in line with it. Sort of simple, basic stuff. The implications there can get pretty complex. How do you recognize who is a good person? What tests are there? How do you recognize what's a good question? But again, it's just that question that the Buddha taught his son. What am I doing right now? Is it skillful, is it not? That gets you in the right direction. Question on Buddha nature. Okay. Um, concept of Buddha nature. It's not taught in the Pali Canon, and it's one of those. It's one of those concepts that causes a lot of problems. You may have heard of Dogen, the, the Japanese Zen monk. That was the question that took him to China. To China, if all beings have Buddha nature, why do we have to practice? And, and I I don't know if he ever really got a decent answer. I think he finally realized that this was a bad question. It's one of those questions that you just got to put aside. Um, In the forest tradition, they teach you that there is there is the potential in everybody, which is the important thing. We all have that potential. Um, The deathless is always there, but what's standing between us and the deathless is our intentions. It's like knowing there's gold under your house. But if you don't dig down and get it, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't pay the bills. And it's, it's all. It's good to know that everybody has this potential, but it's it's not it's not our quote unquote true nature. Because once you start defining true nature, you're getting back to defining well. Who am I? What is my true self? And those are the questions that get in the way. So it's one of those concepts you just put it aside. The question also comes up: Well, why do we hear so much that you know? Buddha's teaching is that there is no self. Is that just a Western invention? Turns out um, Ashva Gosha, have you ever heard of him? He was a Buddhist poet. He wrote a uh, poetic biography of the Buddha. and So kind of tracing down the chronology, he he seems to be the very first Buddhist who came out with a statement, there is no self. Before that, nobody ever said that. So we're talking, what, five, four or five hundred years after the Buddha passed away. You find it in the commentaries. You find it in Northern Buddhism, Southern Buddhism. But it seems to—he seems to be the first person to, to make that statement. You look in the canon; it's never said. So. Yes. it's both and you work on the part that was not skillful break it down into its component factors Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. not for what they did The next time around, you have to think maybe the, it, it was. It, would, would there have been a more skillful choice? You don't see it, then you just put that aside. Work on the things where you can clearly say, "Okay, that was a mistake. I should, next time, I should have done it this way." And be satisfied with working at this incrementally. Someone once asked me why is, um, you know, Westerners were so gung-ho when they went into meditation. This was a, a Thai person. Why is it so gung-ho? The Thais seem to take things fairly casually. And I said, well, Westerners have only one lifetime to do all this. <laughs> 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 but you can always take satisfaction in going in the right direction, even if the steps seems, you know, seem small you're setting your traject- trajectory.
1: Yes. How
0: inside of Well, be reliant in how you you know what choices you make in terms of, you know, the path. Specifically the path. Be self-reliant on how you're going to decide how to be generous, how you're going to be virtuous. That, I mean, that's where it really matters. It doesn't matter whether we're consumers or producers. What really matters is, okay, I take responsibility for my actions. Rather than saying, well, there's some larger social force that's preventing me from doing what's really right here. They okay? say, so, no, I've got to make that choice. So that's a good place to start, and we we don't have have to go out and start learning how to weave our own cloth and you know milk our own cows. Our group wins. I want it to be because we have more integrity, because we're going to do an actual better job. Which sometimes gets you thrown out of the company, but if that's your choice, then you're self reliant. You know? <laughs> but it, it means also not saying, well, everybody else was doing it, so I just kind of went along with them. There come times when you have to say, I'm, I'm Actually I wanted to spend a lot of time meditating, and in Thailand, in order to do that, to get a visa or if renewed, they wouldn't consider you unless you are a monk. So it was a very practical kind of decision. Pramatic, yes. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't because I loved the idea of wearing robes or anything, it was just, you know, okay, this is what I had to do, I had to do it. I had met my teacher liked him a lot, and if that was the condition, okay. In school, uh, one of the professors who, was, who taught comparative religion brought a Thai monk and a Japanese monk to teach meditation during a winter term. So we spent two weeks doing Vipassana and two weeks doing Zen. I love the Zen, and somehow I got up in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Uh, most of the monks, or at least a lot of the monks,
1: I wonder if you could talk about that if there, were, if there were differences
0: in the approach right, so. hmm. for me the big difference was I was the only Westerner studying in that tradition and it was one of those you could look at it from one point of view and say it was you know, pure serendipity that I happened to meet John Fuang who was a student of John Ling. or you can say it was a karmic connection but it just took me kind of a quiet yeah. to, to him um, I met a couple of the John Cha monks I didn't meet that many when I was in Thailand because we were kind of off the beaten path. The John Fuheng was a very reclusive teacher, even among other, among other forested Johns. Um, we were in the wrong part of the country. There weren't that many forested Johns there. Um, most of them made the comment that you know, they, I didn't realize how lucky I was that I had all that one-on-one contact with a John Fuheng. Because with a John cha, for, with them, it was lucky maybe once a month you'd get you know, a statement from the John cha or something. And a John Fuang taught a much more specific meditation technique. John Li, you know, Lee Lee, you know the, the step-by-step-by-step method. And in, in the forest tradition, it's the only very really sort of mapped out kind of technique. So I think that was one of the major differences. That's, that was the main difference. Because I remember particularly at that point where they were making this comment, I mean, having been a John Fueng's personal attendant for six years, and having to go up every day. He, you know, he, he didn't make it easy for me, let's put it that way. You know, boiling his water, preparing his bath, washing his clothes, that was part of the training of him. And there were times when I just said, you know, I'd just rather not go up. Because yeah. I knew I was going to find something fierce. The, the time when it hit worst was, I had a very strong sense that John and could read my mind. And so for two years, I was really good. <laughs> Any unskillful thought, no, 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 he's gonna know. Uh, until one night, it just really hit me. I started thinking about sex, and it got really fascinating. And I said, and it was, it was, just, I was torn between these two emotions. On the one hand, and I'd like to follow it. On the other side, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's gonna know. What am I gonna say? i am gonna face him tomorrow? And so this went on for about three hours. And finally, I was exhausted. Went to bed. Woke up the next morning, and one of my jobs after the meal was to go up to his hut, clean and boil tea water, and sort of clean the porch and everything. And what would usually happen, he'd be sitting on his hut drinking a cup of tea, and if I had anything to talk about, I would go up while he was drinking his cup of tea. If I didn't, I would wait until he went into his room, and then go up and do the job. And I said, well, I think I'll just wait. (laughs) And he drank a cup of tea poured himself another cup of tea. <laughs> After about fifteen minutes I realized, oh I better face the music. So I went up. And what he's he turned to look at me and he said, you know, that kind of meditation is a waste of time. That's all I said. Probably the best thing he could have said. No guilt trips, nothing. I thought about, yeah, he's right, it was a waste of time. So as you can imagine there were times I just didn't want to face him. But because it was my job every day, every day, every day. Got a lot of training I wouldn't have otherwise.
1: Question? Uh, I noticed you haven't used the word moderation. Mm-hmm. Is there a place in the practice for moderation or what does it mean as far well as the practices and so Moderation in what sense? Uh, I would love to have a slice of pizza, but I know that I'm contributing to suffering with daily I do so I'm afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Is there a moderation point? Like a small piece of pizza. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you start out, the very basic sort of lowest common denominator in the practice is, okay, am I actually going out and making you know making them call, you know causing those animals to suffer through my <laughs> my own action or through my ordering them to do that?" And you say, no. Indirectly, you may be contributing, but first start out with the things that you're directly doing in your life. Focus on those first. And then if you have the ability, then you branch out and assume more responsibility for your consumer choices. But the lowest common denominator in in terms of the precepts is, okay, did I do that to the animal, or did I tell somebody by direct order to do that to the animal? That's where you start. Then then you the, the more moderate, the next step is to say, okay, can I change my consumption pattern so I'm causing my suffering? How can you change your
1: consumption pattern without causing suffering?
0: All consumption involves suffering, okay. So you say, okay. And then there's a reflection on the requisites. How much food do I really need in order to practice? How much clothing do I really need? Try to minimize your needs, or strip them down to the basics. And this is one of the reasons we have this rule. I'm
1: still not clear, but do
0: I, is it okay to have a slice of pizza? It's okay to have a slice of If it's for the purpose of the practice, that you need that strength.
1: Well, I would like it to it mm-hmm. <laughs> What kind of pizza? What kind of pizza? <laughs>
0: do they have vegan cheese pizza? <laughs> there are cheese
1: pizzas. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I mean, you have to realize all consumption involves suffering of some kind. We have this chant that we, the monks do every night at the monastery about. Basic requisites, food, clothing, shelter, medicine. And reminding ourselves what's what's the proper motivation in each case. How much food, how much clothing, how much shelter, how much medicine do we really need for the purpose of the practice? Now as a monk we're not allowed to make choices about food, we take what we're given. Now
1: suppose I leave here and mm-hmm. I, there's no soy pizza around, mm-hmm. but I would like to have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But that sure. mm-hmm. Why? That's because that's what's available. Even though it
1: contributes to suffering?
0: What choices do you have?
1: Either to eat it or not eat it. What would
0: you eat instead? Well, I'm
1: walking along 14th Street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would like it. I mean, mm-hmm. I just can't... Uh, no soy pizza around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would like to have it, but I'm contributing
0: to suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, my choice is what do I do when I say I don't want to contribute to suffering. It's one of those ones that's totally up to you. I'm not going to tell you yes or no. <laughs> yes. Yes. out about the pizza, don't eat it. If you find that it's distracting from your concentration practice, okay, just stop thinking that question. Because you realize, as I said, all consumption involves suffering for somebody down the line someplace. Even, you Even know, vegan eating causes suffering. To the farmers and other people who are responsible for getting the food there. You say, "Okay, these—you know—this is the food that's available to me. I'll just, you know, take what's easily available. So I'm not so tied up in, in the question of eating that I can't concentrate. This is what's made its way to New York. Okay, leave it. Just leave it there. Spread good thoughts to the cows. Dedicate the merit of your practice to them. I mean, as a monk, this was often an often an issue." I'd, walking past this little tiny, tiny grass shack, and somebody would come running out and put a little bit of, you know, whatever they had into my bowl. And normally, looking at the people in that grass shack, they're the kind of ones you want to pull out your wallet and give them a little money. Well, I didn't have a wallet, and now I was the recipient of their generosity. You go back and you meditate hard, because you feel, okay, I owe a lot to them today, so I'm going to meditate for their sake. People say that, you know, Buddhist Theravada monks are selfish, but there's a very strong sense of community that they work in. I meet face-to-face the people who are responsible for my food every day, and I owe it to them to meditate, not just goof off.
1: Right. Right.
0: in cases like that you have to look at what is your how much energy do you have how many resources do you have what's the best use of that energy what's the, what are the what's the best use of those resources and there's some areas where you just have to have equanimity I mean, you can't solve all the problems of the world you can't speak up against all the injustices in the world you can't feed all the homeless so you take okay this is what I have what do I feel is the best use of this It's interesting that this whole area of social action fits close in, the, in the Buddhist teachings, fits close to the, the hiding of generosity. <coughs> it's totally up to you. The, the, the response that monks are supposed to give when they're asked by people, oh, you know, where should I give my money, what, what should I do? And they said, one, where you feel inspired, two, where you feel would do the most good. And realizing that you can't do everything if you try to do everything, then the, you know, the really important things get done very poorly. So just sort of create your own sense of your priorities and develop equanimity for the rest. Wherever you feel inspired, wherever you feel inspired to help, that, it's a heart thing. Not encouraged. Well it's, well, it's not allowed. You can't grow your own food and fix your own food. I think it's. You can't be totally self reliant. The only people I know who are, who are really hermits who go off in the, in the wilds and have no contact with anybody else are crazy. And you need a certain amount of con- social contact every day just to keep you in line with sort of human sanity. And this was the area where the Buddha chose this is, you know. You have to eat every day, okay? Keep the monks dependent on the generosity of the lay people. Because on the one hand, that gives the opportunity for the lay people to be generous every day. Secondly, the monks realize directly on my food depends on that person I've got to meditate for. And then I have something, you know, if I can ever pay back in terms of the Dharma, I'll pay back. So it's it's the self-reliance in terms of you choosing your values and choosing to live by your values. That's, that's where the self-reliance is most important. I've enjoyed your questions. There's one, one story I'd like to tell you, which is not, not related to anything that you all have said or done. But it's a good story about questions and answers. John Cha was invited to England one time, <coughs> and he was giving a Dharma talk one evening. At the end of the Dharma talk, he asked for, for questions, and this one woman raised her hand. So he said, there's, there's one issue that's never been properly explained to me, and I've asked many people who've come through England. And that is, after a person enters nirvana, do they still exist or do they not exist? Okay. But John Shaw says, well, that's usually a question that we don't answer, but I'll explain why. And there was a candle that was lit right next to where he was sitting. And it says, see the flame in the candle? Yeah. Okay. Now, while it's still burning, we can talk about it, right? We can talk what shape it is and the color and all. Right? Now, if we put it out, so we put it out Let me say this can we talk about the flame? He said, in the same way, when someone enters nirvana, you can't really talk about them. He said, now, does that answer satisfy me? She said, no. He said, well, in that case, I'm not satisfied with the question. (laughs) (laughs) So, he'll end on that note tonight. (laughs) Thank you for coming.